Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 15 through 26. You can follow along with me in your own Bible. You can follow along. uh, There's a pew Bible in front of some of you. Uh, You can also follow along where uh, it's been provided for you in your bulletin if you'd like to do that. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. My name is Sean Slade. I'm the pastor here. And we're so glad to have you because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing with your time this morning. For instance, you could uh, be recovering from the marathon or half marathon that you already ran this morning uh, and just sort of just feeding your face after having run so much. Or you could be down uh, at Market Square enjoying the sidewalk uh, chalk art exhibits. And I don't know if you know this or not, but one of our own, Abe Eaton, won best in his category. And so we want to congratulate him for that. Uh, Or you could be enjoying the sweet, sweet sounds in your big ears uh, that's been going on this week or you could be having brunch outside of the new uh, playground that's gone in outside of the art museum, which looks really amazing. Fort Kid Playground is back in effect. So if you ever want to go down there and play, you can do that. But you're not doing any of those things right now. Uh, You're here with us this morning, and I want to thank you for coming. And the reality is that there really is nothing better that you could do with your time than worship Jesus and consider his claims upon your life and think about the beauty and the kindness of his salvation. And so I really do want to thank you for joining us this morning. Welcome to Redeemer. Uh, What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church. And uh, what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God. Uh, He's the Messiah. And he's entered into the world uh, to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together uh, to worship him so that we might learn to rest in that love that God has for us in Christ. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community. We love to spend time with one another. We love to go down the slide together at Fort Kidd. We love to hang out together. But we especially love to gather together and read the Bible and pray together so that we can remind each other of the great love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love and as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family to our friends, to our neighbors who are here in Urban and University of Knoxville, and hopefully in some way it would spill out into the entire earth, right? That's who we are. People are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that this morning, we're continuing our Lenten series on responses to Jesus. And I want you to remember that the Lenten season is a season where we focus on uh, repentance and renewal, 
It's the season in the Christian calendar where we focus on that gospel pattern of death and resurrection. And so as we've been looking at these different responses that led to the death of Jesus, it's important for us to think about those responses and how we might actually participate in those responses. So that we might turn away from those ways of death and we might find life in our Savior. And so over the last uh, few weeks, we've looked at people like Caiaphas, we've looked at Pilate, we've looked at Herod, uh, we looked at the thieves, and this morning I want us to consider the crowds, and then we'll conclude this series on Monday, Thursday down at the Standard uh, as we look at the disciples. So this morning we want to consider the crowd. So with that in mind, let's look together, Matthew 27, verses uh, 15 through 26. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, that's right. Praise to you, Lord Christ. The gospel. Sorry, I should have read. Uh, but let's pray. Uh, Father, we are thankful uh, for the gospel that you have given to us. Uh, we're thankful uh, for your word that you are kind to not be hidden and to not be silent, uh, but to reveal yourself in your word, uh, by your spirit, and ultimately in the person and work of Jesus. It's our prayer this morning that as we attend unto your word, that you in your kindness and in your mercy, you would attend unto us. And that we would see lovely things of you in this, your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the most horrific uh, characters in all of Western literature is Lady Macbeth. And if you've read Macbeth or if you've seen a stage production of Macbeth, you'll remember uh, the story. And the story is essentially that her and her husband assassinate their political rival, King Duncan. And the story is essentially this investigation into what happens when someone gives into the impulse to get rid of someone that they don't like. Uh, 
And though for a while it seems to get them ahead, and for a while they seem to get everything that they want, they have removed the challenges, they've removed the conflict from their midst. But when they give themselves to murder, something happens. It changes them. And it changes everyone around them. Because for another human being to dehumanize another human being, even if it is their enemy... To act in such a way that you would dehumanize another human being to the extent that you would kill them. It not only dehumanizes the victim, but it also dehumanizes the perpetrator. You might remember that famous scene in Act 5 when after having killed King Duncan, Lady Macbeth, she can't sleep. And she's haunted by the fact that she's participated in the death of an innocent man. And the guilt of her actions uh, overwhelm her so much that she is troubled in her sleep and she struggles to sleep and she finds herself in the middle of her sleep living out the nightmares of what she has done. And so she begins to walk the halls in the middle of the night and there's that famous scene where she's walking in the middle of the night. She looks down at her hands and she sees the blood guilt. And she tries to wash out that guilt. She tries to get rid of it. And she says in that famous phrase, out, damned spot, out. Will these hands ever be cleaned? And this play is meant to be a meditation on the reality that when someone who thinks they have the authority to extinguish the life of another human being does it, something irreversible and unalterable and unforgettable happens. Because there is something so beautiful and sacred about a human being. And when another human being would take the authority upon themselves to kill another human being, something is ripped, something is destroyed, something is undone in the universe. And everything changes. Changing the circumstances, changing the person, changing everyone around them. And so before each of us sits this question, who or what will we become? Will we become a people who give ourselves to violence? Will we become a people who nurse hatred and contempt in our hearts? Or will we be a people who follow in the way of Jesus? That is the question that sits before each of us. And that is the question that lies before us in this text. Who will we become? What do we want this world to be about? What kind of God do we serve? And how will we serve him? That's the question before us in this text. And the only one who sees this, ironically, is Pilate's wife. I want you to notice what she says in verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So I want you to think about this. As Jesus was brought before Pilate, as Jesus had been brought before the elders and the chief priests and before the crowds of Jerusalem, Each and every one of them sat in judgment over him. 
And Pilate's wife says, that man is innocent. Do not touch him. I want you to think about that because all the power players have gathered together. Uh, I want you to think about uh, the crowd gathering together. All the voices of influence, all the popular opinion polls have come in. And all of them are willing to condemn Jesus. It says they want to destroy him. They want to get rid of him. They want him gone. And a pagan woman, the ultimate outsider, courageously stands up against the crowds and she says, Jesus is righteous. Jesus is innocent. Do not kill him. So here's the deal. Following Jesus will often require that we go against the crowd. And this is really important because uh, just because everyone is doing it, we know, doesn't make it right. And just because everyone thinks that's what should be done, doesn't mean that's what should be done. And just because everyone thinks it's okay, does not necessarily make it okay. You see, following Jesus will often mean that we have to have the courage to go against the crowds. And I think that this is a challenge for most of us because the reality is that most of us really just want to fit in. Uh, most of us really just want to live and let live. We want to go out about our business. We want to have a nice life. And other than the fours among us in the Enneagram, uh, we uh, don't want to go against the flow. Because what we really want is to be popular, to be comfortable, to be respected, to be close to power, and to be cool. But here's the deal. In order to follow Jesus, we must often go against the crowds. In order to follow Jesus, you must follow Jesus. In order to follow Jesus, you must follow him. And so the question before each and every generation is this, do you want to follow the Jesus of the Bible? Do you want to follow the Jesus that actually walked among us and told us to take up our cross and follow him? Or do we want the Jesus of the crowds? Do we want a Jesus that merely reflects the desires of the day? Now, when we talk about the crowds, I think it's important to think about who these crowds are because there's a notion out there that these crowds on Palm Sunday in Matthew 21 were the same crowds in Jerusalem uh, that lifted up their voices and shouted, crucify. That's not exactly right. Uh, the crowd that gathers in Matthew 21 on Palm Sunday and they wave their branches and they shout Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is a crowd that was welcoming Jesus. They were following Jesus from outside of Jerusalem into Jerusalem. They're celebrating him. They're proclaiming his kingdom. They're proclaiming his name. And then on that same day in Palm, on Palm Sunday in Matthew 21, there's another crowd there. That as the one crowd shouts Hosanna, there's another crowd that was stirred up. And that was the crowd of Jerusalem. And that crowd said, who is this? 
They say, who is this Jesus? We do not know him. We do not care about him. We want nothing of him. And eventually that same crowd that said, who is this, was stirred up once again on Good Friday by the elders, by the priests, by the religious elites, by the powers of the city who love their power and envy Jesus. They stirred up the crowds once again to lift up their voices and shout crucify. But the question is why? Why might they have been so bothered by Jesus? I think this is kind of interesting because what happened, remember, on Palm Sunday was that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And though uh, a donkey for many of us represents humility and service, in the ancient world, a king riding on a donkey was the announcement of peace. And so what would happen is an ancient king, as they rode off to war, would ride off on their, uh, on their war stallions. But after the victory, they would mount the donkey and come back into the city to announce the peace that had come through their victory. And so when Jesus gets on the back of the donkey and he rides it into Jerusalem, he is announcing peace. But when the people of Jerusalem see him on the donkey, they're like, um, there is no peace here. Rome continues to oppress us. Violence is all around us. Israel is weak. And where there is no peace, there must be revolution. Where there is no peace, there must be war. Where there is no peace, there must be violence. And the oppressor must be judged. We must be freed. And the powers must be undone. But what the crowd missed, or maybe what they were unwilling to accept, was that as Jesus came into the city, what he was saying is, I know there is no peace. But I am your peace. And that's the choice that sits before the crowd. Is peace going to come through revolution and violence? Or will it come through Jesus? And so Jesus, so Pilate sets before the crowd these two ways. You see it in verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. One was Barabbas and one was Jesus. And Pilate lifts them up before the crowds and he says, whom do you want? Now in some of your Bibles, you might notice at the bottom a little footnote that uh, says in early manuscripts or some manuscripts have Jesus Barabbas. And this is really interesting because uh, in Aramaic Hebrew, bar means son, abbas means uh, father. And so set before the crowds is Jesus, Barabbas, Jesus, the son of the father, and Jesus, the son of man, the son of God, Jesus, the Messiah. Which Jesus do you want? That's the decision laid before them. Now, whether the name Jesus was actually in the original or not, as early as the second century, Origen commented on this saying, no one can have the name Jesus who is a sinner. 
So he is Barabbas. And in doing this, Origen was choosing his Jesus. And in saying this, what he is saying is there is only one Savior. There is only one way. And that way of salvation comes through the one who comes in peace. So who is this Barabbas? I want you to notice in verse 16, he was a notorious prisoner. He was an infamous, infamous prisoner. Now, that doesn't mean what the three amigos thought, that he was infamous, as if, you know, he's, uh, it means that he was known for his violence. The Gospel of Mark tells us who he was. Listen to the way Mark describes him. He says, And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. So who was Barabbas? Barabbas was a rebel. He was a murderer. He was an insurrectionist. And if you read through history, you'll know that before and after Jesus, there were a lot of Jewish revolts or uh, uh, Jewish insurrections against their oppressors, even against Rome. Because the people that lived in Jerusalem, they, they were sick and tired of the suffering that was around them. They, they were sick and tired of the poverty and of the oppression that they were enduring. And they longed to be the glorious people of God that God had declared them to be. And they longed for the glories of David's kingdom to come once again. And so Barabbas was most likely a member or a leader of a band of guerrilla insurrectionists. He was a nationalistic freedom fighter whose greatest desire was to make Israel great again. And maybe he was one who, uh, with his sword, stabbed a Roman soldier. Maybe he was someone who had killed a wealthy Jew who had partnered with the Roman government. And this is why he was popular with the crowds. This is why the crowds wanted him in Jerusalem, because he was like William Wallace to the Scottish clans. He was brave, and he was strong, and he was sticking it to the man with his broadsword. And the crowds actually admired him. And they admired him because at least Barabbas wasn't afraid to fight. At least Barabbas was a brave patriot who had upheld God and country and fought for freedom and prosperity and was willing to use violence in order to secure it. And so when the crowds were offered the choice between Jesus Barabbas and Jesus the Messiah, they were asking this question to themselves. Which Jesus holds the greatest promise for our future? And so in the name of maybe national security, in the name of freedom, in the name of comfort, in the name of safety, in the name of strength, in the name of no longer being vulnerable, the crowds chose the wrong Jesus. And they chose the wrong Jesus because Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah, is a Jesus who makes no sense to us. 
He makes no sense to this world because what kind of man, uh, more importantly, what kind of king turns the other cheek? What kind of king, when asked for his uh, tunic, would give his robe? What kind of king, when forced to go a mile, would go two? What sort of king prays for and actually loves and serves his enemies? And then when Jesus had come and he's proclaiming and teaching about the kingdom of God, he instituted his constitution and he said, what our kingdom will be built upon, those who will be blessed in this kingdom are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then he goes on to say, In my kingdom, we do not look for the rewards of this earth. We look for the reward of heaven. And that is the choice before each of us. The kingdoms of this world secured through violence and power and might. A kingdom that is built upon the way of Barabbas. Or the kingdom of God. The kingdom of Jesus. The one who is the prince of peace. The one who is the suffering servant. The one whose reward is heaven itself. And that reward was then secured through the life, death, and resurrection of our master. The one who comes to us and says that to die is to live. To give is to receive. To serve is to reign. And to pray is power. Which Jesus do you want? That is the question. And if we're honest, we're not far from the crowds. Especially this morning, because we are so afraid of suffering. We are so afraid of vulnerability. And we will do anything to avoid it. And what do we prize? We prize power, and we despise the weak. We celebrate the rich, and we despise the poor. We vote for the arrogant and mock the meek. We want to be right and we avoid peace. And we want vengeance and we despise grace. So the crowd, they, they made their choice, verse 21, release Barabbas. And Pilate says, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said, let him be crucified. And Pilate says, but he's innocent. And they said, verse 25, his blood be on us and our children. What I want you to see is that the crowd chose the way of insurrection and violence rather than the way of Jesus. And sadly, by choosing this way, within 40 years, the wrath of Rome fell upon Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
destroying her temple and taking the lives of many of those in Rome. But the glory and the irony of this passage is that Jesus' blood really does rest upon the guilty. And Jesus' blood really does rest upon us, not to make us guilty, but to actually forgive us. You see, Jesus is the way of peace. And in order to make peace with God, Jesus endured the violence of the cross and the anger of the crowds and the ignorance of our decisions. Not to condemn us, but so that his blood might rest upon us, so that we might be forgiven. And even though we sent him to die, it is through our ignorance and it's through our foolishness that God actually reveals his great power, his great wisdom, and his great strength. Because though the crowds wanted Barabbas and though they cried crucify behind all of it, God was at work to make peace. Behind all of our wicked and foolish decisions, God was actually handing Jesus over to die for our sins in order to make peace with us. Dale Bruner says it this way, that through what was despicable of Pilate and foolish of the crowds, God was wonderful and strong. The wrong Jesus was released. The wrong Jesus scourged. The wrong Jesus crucified. But God used all these wrongs to make everything right. He who did nothing wrong, an innocent victim, was condemned for everything so that we who have done everything wrong would be condemned for nothing. And what I want you to see here is that God uses even the guilt of the crowds to cover our guilt and to make peace through the violence of the cross. And so it's for those who want Jesus. It's for those of us who now cry out, save us. That his blood now covers us and rests upon us and upon our children to cleanse us from our guilt and to make peace with God. And that's the point of this table. Because as we come to this table and as we look at this table, we're reminded of all the other saviors that we want. We're reminded of all the other choices that we have made and how we have turned away from innocent Jesus. We've chosen the way of power. We've chosen the way of violence. We've chosen the way of security. We've chosen the way of sex. We've chosen the way of comfort. We've chosen the way of power. And we've turned away from God. And yet God is the one who pursues a way of peace. Entering this world to make peace with us. Enduring the cross, shedding his blood, dying as an innocent victim and as the loving gift of our Heavenly Father so that by his blood we might be healed. 
And therefore, as Jesus invites us to his table, he invites us now to lay down our violent ways and to silence our angry voices and to follow him in the sacrificial, blessed way of peace. (laughs) 